Thank you for listening, but please be aware that I am not an expert in any of the topics I talk about on the show. I also swear, and I do not bleep or edit swears out in any way, so listener discretion is advised. Managing about a hundred homes, the governor of Missouri declared a state of emergency. Very serious situation here in Hawaii. Earlier this evening, the uh, civil defense calling for an evacuation of all low-lying areas because of a tsunami threat. Sky turns black as giant tornadoes touch down from Nebraska to Texas. Good day, everyone. I'm Ruby, and this is episode 42 of Living Through Extinction, a short to the point podcast with science, skepticism, environment, wildlife, and some looks at how we can do better for future generations. It's been really rough recording lately, and editing has been a nightmare as a result, so my apologies for the last two episodes. I've had to deal with a lot of background hum from fans and air conditioners running on the floor above me. Upstairs in our house is hot on nice days, and this near 40 degree bullshit, Celsius, which is about 100 Fahrenheit, turns it into a complete oven, and forcing the kids to turn everything off would be close to child abuse. The conditions I'm recording under today are actually quite a bit better. However, I'm still kind of learning my new equipment, and since I only do this every two weeks, I just haven't had a lot of opportunity to get proficient at it yet. So that's probably going to be my issue going forward until I have everything figured out. So anyway, here we go. If you have joined me before, thank you so much for returning. If this is your first time listening to Living Through Extinction, welcome! I hope you find it both fun and informative. So here we go again. Republican politicians and pastors are telling outright lies to spread anger and hate and rile up the masses of the ignorant and the unskeptical. The story about this song should have ended up in one of my happy segments because it's fucking awesome. But no, Republicans had to come along and try to ruin it. So now it's stuck in a segment where the lies have to be pointed out. The San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus put out a song poking fun at this weird notion the right seems to have that LGBTQ2S plus people want to turn straight people gay or trans, which they don't. As far as I'm concerned, anyone who would believe and spread such things deserves to be made fun of. Google it. Watch it. It's fabulous. That's the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. Just Google will convert your children with that. And uh, the song should pop up. You should be able to see a video. And it's awesome. What Republican politicians and pastors are doing, however is sharing the beginning of a verse and hollering about how evil it is and how outrageous that the gays even admit it. The lines they are sharing are, We'll convert your children. Happens bit by bit. Quietly and subtly, you will barely notice it. Of course, they stop there, not sharing the rest of the verses, which changes the meanings completely. One of these verses ends with, We'll convert your children. We'll make them tolerant and fair. Another ends with, We'll convert your children. Someone's got to teach them not to hate. The message in this song is a good one. It's a message about acceptance, tolerance, and equality. The people who are misrepresenting this as hate speech and as an admission of wanting to turn straight kids gay are doing so for the specific purpose of making people angry. And it's worked. Thousands of dumbasses have been fooled by these bigoted assholes into believing the song is about something it is not. Obviously, they aren't listening to it for themselves. And of course, because anti-LGBT people are so hateful, death threats have been the result. 
Misrepresentation of the truth in order to spread bullshit and hate works way too well on the willfully ignorant who want to be angry, who want to hate. Innocent people are now enduring death threats because of these lies. They are not harmless. The truth matters. Be skeptical, damn it. Way back on episode 9, Jason and I did an episode on clothing and textiles. Clothing waste is a massive problem worldwide. According to the EPA, clothes made up 9% of all municipal solid waste in the U.S. in 2014. Production and coloring uses ridiculous amounts of both energy and water and emit massive amounts of greenhouse gases and water pollution. Most of our garments today are woven from plastic-based acrylic, nylon, or polyester threads, all of which are chemically produced and all of which are not biodegradable. And color alone, that uses 3,500 man-made chemicals, which include lead and petroleum-based ones. Well, now it has been shown that clothing and textiles can be made from algae and other living organisms. Even ways of coloring textiles have been developed that use completely natural processes. We're talking biodegradable textiles grown from live organisms. Deanne Shiros, Shiros, my apologies, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce this, should have looked it up. An assistant professor in the Math and Science Department at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City first chose to work with algae for her biodegradable materials. So far, algal-based fibers have turned out to be naturally fire-resistant, and algae biodegrades much quicker than cotton does. It also does not require the pesticides or large areas of land like cotton. There's less waste from the process and almost no pollution. This is a very environmentally friendly material. The reason waste is reduced so much is there is no longer a need for cutting out patterns. Clothes are grown to fit specific molds, so no cutoffs or castoffs. They just grow the material required. And success has been shown in growing complete items without need for factory assembly. The yarn-like fiber we get from algae can also be dyed with non-chemical pigments, including crushed insect shells and bacteria. One example I read explained pouring a liquid filled with bacterial nutrients over the textile in a container. It is exposed to bacteria and then left in a climate-controlled chamber for three days. When it is done, it is sterilized, washed, rinsed, and dried, and we have a colored piece. You can Google pictures of organic silk dyed with bacteria to see some results. A company has been founded called Algenit, which hopes to eventually produce algae-based apparel on a commercial scale. Back to the professor. She had her students work on another textile project, this one using bacteria. They created what is called a bio-leather from a combination of liquid bacteria culture, fungi, and compostable waste. They grew them into the unsewn shape of baby moccasins and then stitched them together using fibers pulled from discarded pineapple tops from a smoothie shop down the street. They made dyes from avocado seeds and indigo leaves to color the leather and embedded carrot seeds in them before beginning the dyeing process. Apparently one should be able to plant them when their baby grows out of them. How cool is that? So cool that the design appeared in last year's Biodesign Challenge Summit at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. I think it's great because baby footwear has grown out of so quickly. Algal-based textiles are new and not quite perfected yet. The next step to overcome is going to be strength. At this time, they are not quite holding up to wear and tear. 
But there are already researchers working on ideas for natural ways to treat the materials that would make them stronger. So I'll have to watch for an update on this one. There is this family of around 15 elephants migrating across China for unknown reasons. Many people have been following them for some time now, but I recently spoke with someone who hadn't heard about it, so decided to cover it on the show. This herd of Asian elephants has traveled more than 500 kilometers through southwestern China. They began in March of 2020 with 16 elephants all heading off together. With births along the way and wandering off of a couple, the number is now at 15. There are six adult females, three adult males, three juveniles, and three calves. This is the longest elephant migration ever seen in China, and it's fascinating people all over the world. No one is sure as to why they're traveling or when they'll stop. I highly recommend Googling pictures of this family of elephants as they sleep in fields along the way. Oh my gosh, these pictures are so adorable. But as adorable as they may be, these are giants, and they are headed to areas not meant for animals of their size. Towards the end of June, they were headed towards a city of 8 million people, and all sorts of endeavors had to be undertaken to keep both the elephants and human citizens safe. Police are blocking certain routes and trying to guide them away from any towns and cities. Food is being used to try to guide them along safer paths, and this is costing a lot of money. Despite efforts, there have been instances of them raiding crops and wandering down small town streets in search of food. In National Geographic, I found this, stating that the elephants have, quote, broken into kitchens and popped into a nursing home, unquote. What does that mean exactly? Popped into a nursing home. I'm really annoyed that I couldn't find anything in more detail about that statement. I'm picturing a head or a trunk just popping in through a window, but I'm sure it was much more serious than that. There are several solutions in discussion right now. One is to continue to use tons of food and barricades to try to turn them around and get them going back to their original habitat. Due to their endangered status, some think a new habitat should be created for them in the area where they're headed, and the problem should be mitigated until it's ready. There has also been talk of tranquilizing and physically taking them back to their starting point. I want to know what makes them think they won't just up and start walking again if they do that one. If you want to look into this more, Google Asian elephants migrate through China and you'll find all sorts of articles, but don't forget to Google the adorable pictures of them sleeping. Groundwater. If you aren't a farmer or a steadier of these things, you may never give it a second thought. It will inevitably affect you down the road though, whether you are thinking about it or not. Excessive draining of aquifers, which contain the Earth's groundwater supplies, has caused landscape changes and is threatening our food supply. Aquifers hold more water than all lakes and rivers on Earth, yet we still seem to be using them up too quickly. We are able to see this draining with a satellite system named GRACE. GRACE consists of two satellites, actually. I recommend watching a video explanation at PBS. It makes it really easy to understand how the two pieces are connected and how they work together to make everything function. Just a note, GRACE is also used to track the movements of ice sheets, so it's come up in other episodes, but that's not the topic for today. While the U.S. does have a huge problem with their largest aquifers right now, it is not just them. This is a global issue. There are 37 major aquifers that we know of and are tracking. From what we can tell, more than half of them are more than halfway past sustainability tipping points, which means they are being used up more quickly than they can be replenished. This is why water matters, why it comes up in just about every episode. It is not an infinite resource. 
Jason and I spoke about massive water usage in the textiles episode number nine, and I spoke about it on the commercial meats episode 32, cosmetics 21, and why cricket-based proteins are so important on episode 40. Humans began tapping aquifers about 100 years ago, and today half of the total water usage from farming comes from there. The obvious loss from draining them is water supply, but the landscape is being affected as well. As these aquifers empty, the land above them, it shifts and it sinks. In Arizona, the ground didn't just drop. It ripped open, wide open. There is a massive, deep beyond deep, very long, jagged hole that I don't feel like I could possibly describe properly. I recommend checking out pictures and videos of this opening in the ground at PBS. Your mouth will hang open in awe at the size of this gaping wound in the earth. It's like the kind of thing we only expect to see happen in movies. A 2014 paper in Nature shows how groundwater depletion is also making the Sierra Nevada and coast mountain ranges slowly rise, apparently enough to eventually trigger earthquakes. An aquifer draining caused sinking has been recorded in Bangkok, New Orleans, California, Mexico City, Shanghai, Tokyo, and Saudi Arabia. Another severe case is in, I didn't look how to say this one either, Jokui Valley, where in 2013 it was discovered it had been sinking an average of 11 inches per year. Our groundwater is a valuable resource. Not just valuable, but necessary. In the U.S., it's the main source of drinking water for half the total population and nearly all the rural population. It provides over 50 billion gallons of water per day for agriculture. The depletion is leading to dry wells especially during droughts, and collapsing, compacting, and dropping of the soil is also happening as a result. In some cases, farmers are almost competing with each other to get deeper than the other guy and grab the water before anyone else can. It's gotten rather cutthroat at times. The worst part of this kind of activity is that if they go too far down, they can pass the fresh water and end up hitting salt water which can then flow up and mix with and contaminate the fresh supply, so nobody can use it anymore. In North America, some of the largest issues with overusage of groundwater, lowering wells again and again, and sucking up water to the point of neighbors' wells going dry, are with almond and pistachio farms. It takes 1.1 gallons of water to produce one finished almond. One gallon for a single pistachio. So how many almonds are in a pound? I don't know, but say there's 20 almonds in a pound. That's 22 gallons of water. Then multiply that by the over 2 billion of those one pound piles per year. All those almonds times 1.1 gallons is a fuck ton of water. They're using more than what the entire population of Los Angeles and San Francisco use in a year. And two thirds of these almonds are actually being shipped overseas. So the water usage isn't even going for crops to feed their own people. Can you imagine nothing coming out of your faucets one day when you turn the tap and the only thing you can do about it is to pay to truck in water? In a place where you settled, where there should have been enough water for generations to come, but because of almond farms moving in all around you, your well has gone completely dry. In 2015, this happened in Porterville, California. The wells that supplied these homes were no longer deep enough to reach water and taps went dry. There was no water in these homes for a very long time. The city had to set up temporary portable showers and sinks. There were rows of sinks with mirrors and parking lots of churches where people could come and shave before work. This went on for at least a year. 
Due to almond and pistachio farms, regular farms and settlers are being forced to continuously deepen their wells and invest in adding new ones, which is not a cheap endeavor. The thing is, almond and pistachio farmers in California are not trying to feed a growing population. It's all a rush to make the big bucks on these two currently high-priced products. It's a race to make the money and use up the water before their neighbors can do the same. Apparently, the money in these items is huge, and that attracts the type of people who don't care about what they are doing to the people around them, as long as they can make their money doing it. One farmer who thinks change is possible claims that the water in the Ogallala Aquifer has been squandered over the last 40 to 50 years. This is one of the largest on Earth. It runs beneath eight states in the U.S. He said if we were to stop pumping today, that it would take 6,000 years to recover what was taken in the last 40 to 50 years. The supply is now one-third empty. He compared our use of this water to mining at one point. We can take, 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 and when it's gone, it's gone. That'll be it. He also claims that we have the calculations and we know how much can be used so that use is replaced annually. He believes farming can continue responsibly if farmers were to all get on board and agree to work towards sustainability. He is not wrong about how slowly they replenish. According to NASA, aquifers replenish so slowly that they are essentially a non-renewable resource. So when are we going to start treating it that way? Why aren't these resources protected? We could have limits on how deep you can go so that depth competitions can't get out of hand, possibly contaminating a supply for thousands of people. Wells that used to only be 200 feet now have to go as far as 2,000 feet because of competitive drilling. Digging deeper and deeper, taking more and more, not caring for future generations at all. And people have been and are suffering because of it. Groundwater depletion is a serious worldwide issue that I will be following in the months to come, especially with the severe heat and droughts this year. I'm sure updates after this summer will be more devastating than ever. For my little selfish segment today, I would like to share with you a beautiful little book which was released with the title, George. That is not the title that the author wishes it to be referred to anymore, though, so going forward I will refer to it as she does. Melissa's Story. Melissa's Story was published in 2015, and it's a beautiful story about a transgender girl. Alex Gino, author, said that she was writing the book she wished she would have had access to as a child. It's gone on to win a Children's Choice Award for Debut Author, a Juvenile California Book Award, and a Stonewall Award, which is from the American Library Association. The book also received four stars from Publishers Weekly and the School Library Journal. And it's been published in multiple languages. But Alex came to the realization that she made a mistake. She was pressured into changing the original title, George, a Girl's Story. The publishers just wanted it to be George. Today, she thinks about the fact that the main character does not identify with the name used as the title of the book, and she wishes she would have been more forceful, that she would have stood up for it. But even so, she doesn't think George should be a part of the title at all. She now refers to it as Melissa's story, and she asks that her fans do the same. This is the part that makes me so happy. She began something she called Sharpie Activism, where when she would be at a signing for her book, she would cross out the name George and write in Melissa's story right on the front cover. Since she began, fans have started changing their own copies at home and sending her pictures, and she shows them off on her social media pages. Not only is this author fine with you defacing your copies of her book, she's encouraging it and asking for more pictures. She's happy that this movement with her book was embraced. So if you have a copy of George, go ahead and correct your copy in a fun and creative way and send it to alex at alexgino.com. 
Since she is sharing them online, just be sure to let her know if you do not want your name shared. Alex Gino released a public apology to her character, the larger trans community, and to all of her readers for the initial error. A quote from her Twitter feed also said, I'm sorry for my part in furthering the notion to literally thousands of people that it is ever acceptable to refer to a trans person by a name that doesn't work for them. I refer to it as Melissa's story, and I ask you to do the same when reasonable. Thank you. End quote. I personally have nothing but love for this author and respect for this decision, and she made it so fun by inviting people to share their creativity. I'm sorry, but you have to be a monster if this one doesn't put a smile on your face as it did mine. And I have nothing else here, so I guess I'm done. Thank you for listening. Have a great two weeks, and may your health and sanity be replenished daily. Thank you to Jason Martin for composing the intro and outro for the show, and thank you to Kathy Rayner and Paul Palmer for their musical contributions on the violin and guitar. I hope you will join me again in two weeks for episode 43 of Living Through Extinction. Very serious situation here in Hawaii earlier this evening. The uh, civil defense calling for an evacuation of all low-lying areas because of a tsunami threat. Sky turns black as giant tornadoes touch down from Nebraska to Texas. Apocalyptic scenes as twisters.